Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In Season 3, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest is Mary Beth Chalk, co-founder and chief commercial officer at Beekeeper AI and stage one invasive ductal carcinoma survivor. As Mary Beth states, but it's not just change on others' part. I have to change. I have to be okay when things are dropping and they're not getting done and things aren't happening. And that's requiring, it's a paradox, letting go of control. Hi, Mary Beth. It's good to see you. Hi, it's good to be with you today. Excellent. So what would you like coaching on? Well, you know, we talked about the fact that artificial intelligence was so prominent in the post that I developed with you in the interview that we had uh, in online. So I thought maybe it might be interesting to explore um, the need or the feeling that I had of using, I wanted there to be artificial intelligence in the breast screening process to kind of have that angel on my shoulder and the fact that I felt so vulnerable as uh, someone who's been in healthcare for 25 years, knowing what I know about unintentional mistakes that can be made, I, I wanted a little bit of an insurance policy as I was going through my breast cancer diagnostic process. Mm. So what I'm hearing is when you went through your cancer ordeal, uh, you wish that there was some type of angel on your shoulder in terms of AI. Yeah to just mm-hmm. be a safeguard. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Great. That so what correct. would be- I felt very, um, I felt vulnerable to human beings being able to do their job perfectly uh, and several human, key human beings in the process. And because I was so dependent on them doing their jobs perfectly, I was nervous. I was anxious. Mm. So, um, so you were nervous and anxious just because the, of the human component involved in yes. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would be like a great outcome for today? I think a great outcome for today would be um, to explore and talk about the power of possible for the future of cancer and cancer treatment and cancer care to give people hope and perhaps to open up the awareness of what's possible in the future. Mm. So the power and possibility of what's what can be. Yes, yes. Okay, great. So you mentioned sort of this aspect of uh, making sure that everyone did their job right. How were you handling that day-to-day type of feeling? As I went in for my routine mammogram, I wasn't as sensitive to it because I assumed it's just going to be like all the others and nothing will be found and so it's okay and but then when they found something quote suspicious then and went back for the diagnostic you know my rational brain knew that there's a reasonable probability of false positives So I wasn't overly anxious at that point about it, but I just thought, 
you know, it's I still need to go in and get that checked. And as they did the second mammogram to try to find that suspicious mass and then moved me into the ultrasound room to then go deeper, um, I realized that my positioning on the machine and the way that the technicians had worked with me had a direct bearing on whether the image was clear, whether the image could be read. Um, And even my ultrasound um, technician, as she was moving the wand over the upper portion of my breast, you know, she kept sort of inferring and acting like, "Mm, not finding anything, there's nothing here. And yet she then, you know, told me I could get dressed and leave. But then she came back out and she said, no, I need you to come back. There's a very specific region that I need to search that I did not look into. And so it was the series of trusting that I was getting positioned correctly, that the wand was in the right sphere to find this small tumor, and that then once the image got shared with the radiologist that he, in this particular situation, was able to identify this tiny, tiny pin-sized mass um, against my chest wall. And so I think it was just throughout that process I became hyper sensitive to my vulnerability as a human being and depending on them to do their jobs well. So you mentioned a few things there about trust and vulnerability. How's that shown up in your life? I think um, hmm, it's a really good question. I don't think I do vulnerability very well. Um, And I think it's difficult for me to trust just because of early childhood traumas and early childhood abuse that I experienced. And I think that has, it taught me as a young child that it was pretty important to stay somewhat in control of things because scary bad things happened when you weren't. Mm. Scary bad things happen when you don't. Yes. And in this instance, when the um, radiologist came back and she said, we have to look over a certain mass, what were you, what were the sensations in your body at that time? Um, When it was interesting, because when the ultrasound technician didn't find anything the first time, I was already developing in my own body a sense of where the tumor was. And um, the mammogram technician had said, we're looking in the upper left quadrant of your right breast, the 10 o'clock position. And it was interesting as, you know, she had searched and positioned me, I was beginning to physically identify with the location. And so as the initial ultrasound wand was moving over uh, the top of my right breast, I I kept thinking, she's not in the right place. She's not in the right place. She's not going to find it. And so when she came out and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to come back um, because I need to look in a different place. I had this physical sensation of relief. It was like, yes, she's going to find it now. And sure enough, when she put her wand down in the new place, I went, that's it. She's going to find it. And she found it. And I could tell by her response that she had found it. And it was just relief. I was physically relieved that it was being found. Physically relieved that it was being found. Yeah. Mm. And a knowing of where it was. Mm. Was it sort of this aspect of feeling like you knew, but they somehow would overlook that? Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Very much so. You mentioned sort of about sort of early childhood traumas and and whatnot. In this instance, with sort of your discovery of this particular situation, did did you have any recall from the past? You know, not in the moment. Um, I didn't connect those dots. Other than I found myself having an extreme fear, emotional response in the moment, which I have learned those extreme emotional responses come from deep past. 
So I knew that I was connecting with that fear, fearful small child from my past, but I didn't didn't intellectually connect it. But I remember sitting with these powerful feelings of fear and emotion, wondering what is wrong with me? <laughs> if it is breast cancer, they've caught it so early, you know, and the outcomes are so good. And I have nothing to be this extremely frightened about. And so not until really your question did I connect it with, oh, it went back to that moment in my past as a small child where, you know, trauma was inflicted. What was um, the little girl? Um, Mary Beth like? She was um, kind of the peacemaker in her family. She took on the responsibility of reading others in her family and their emotions and their feelings and working to make sure that things just sort of stay calm and smooth and um, kind and loving in her family so she had a lot of responsibility and when conflict occurred what how did she react uh, very intense fear so a lot of internal tension um, almost a queasy nauseous kind of feeling of uh-oh uh-oh here it comes so it was um, something to be managed and to avoid things escalating to that point in this particular situation, does that little girl come up? Um, she didn't. It wasn't the queasy, uh-oh, it's about to hit kind of feeling. It was more of a just an intense, I'm, I'm, I don't have control here. And it was uh, just that fear of I can't control this. I can't. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And when that fear swells up, does it hit you anywhere in your body? When that type of fear comes up, it is, I have no control over my tears. And I am not a crier, but I cry. Uh, when I feel extremely vulnerable and I have no control, that's when I cry. And in your life, has the crying ever given you any wisdom? I think most of my wisdom has come from tears, honestly. Really? I think much of my life's wisdom is based on those really hard, dark, painful, scary times. Mm -hmm. That's and why I, you know, I want to embrace those times because I know there's such profound wisdom and insights that come out of those moments. Um, I don't look for them. <laughs> but when they come, I've learned not to run from them. So, Do you want to explore deeper into that feeling? Mm, yes. But if I start to let go, oh, I don't want to cry, I'll just say, time's up. <laughs> okay. That's fine with me. So once you get comfortable in your seat, we'll just do a quick body scan. You can soften your gaze or even close your eyes if you feel very, very comfortable. Just want you to breathe into your body, Mary Beth. It's a couple of breaths in and out. And I just want you to breathe into the different body parts I mentioned. It's the top of the head, the forehead, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the lips, the neck, shoulders, upper body, arms, your hands, torso, Lower body, legs, feet. Just take a couple of breaths in and out. 
you know, the swirling of emotions you spoke of. Is anything capturing your attention? No, I think other than, um, I think I'm aware of how much tension I carry in my body. And where does that tension usually lie? My hands, my torso, probably my face as well. Hands, torso, and face. Mm-hmm. Does any one of those three sort of try to grab you, get your attention? Probably hands the most. In what way? They have a very um, difficult, if not impossible, time uh, being at rest. They're, they'll fidget, you know, I'll be moving my fingers, you know, running my fingers over my nails, you know, I'm just always, and I'm so conscious of it that when I'm in important meetings, business meetings, um, I will put my hands under the table intentionally because I know it's an indicator of stress or anxiety. So it comes out in my hands. When has that first started for you? You know, I don't know. I've become more conscious of it, I would say, in the last year, and wondering when and how that started. But I don't have an answer for that yet. When it's, when it's moving and fidgeting, is it pointing to something in your life, or is it just automatic? It's usually in situations where I'm feeling vulnerable or I'm in a situation where I'm not quite sure what to do or um, I'm feeling, well, it's usually vulnerable. You know, I'm scared or um, scared or sad. Scared or sad with the vulnerability. Mm Mm-hmm. If it if it had a, a voice of some kind, what do you suppose it might say to you? You got this. <laughs> you got this. Yeah, you got this. You said that so confidently. Yeah, it's 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 a knowing. I mean, I know, I know it deep, like, but in a different part of my body, like I know it in my heart, like my core self. You got this. But there are parts of my body who don't quite yet know that. And it's the hands? Yeah. And is it the hands that don't know that? Hands, um, the outward expression of the face, and then the uh, core trunk. So if the heart was a parent, what would it say to its, uh, its child, like the hands? It would reinforce the fact that you have done an amazing job of overcoming very difficult, traumatic events in your life. You've harvested goodness out of that. You've leveraged those moments to become stronger and better. You got this. Relax, relax. And what others think, it doesn't matter, just relax. And of course, as all children do, they usually have a response. So what would, what would the hand say back to the heart? It would probably say, I'm working to know that, but I don't know that yet. I'm working to know that. Yeah. What do you think it yep. needs? It's too flippant and a little too simple to say it simply needs permission. Um, But there is an element of permission 
that's needed. Um, and it's also something that I am conscious of now, you know, as I'm in my 60th or sixth decade of life, that I am working to um, release. And so I think continuing to give myself permission, um, owning the fact that I've always been in roles in my life, both professionally and personally, that required extroversion, to be in charge, to be in command, to be highly verbal, highly interactive with people. And I am owning the fact that I am a profound introvert. And the fact that I have been in these extroverted roles has been a source of anxiety for me. And so as I've allowed, and frankly, it's one of the gifts of COVID, right? Working at home, I'm by myself all day. I am really happy with my thoughts. <laughs> so I like being by myself. And I think that's the thing that COVID has shown me is it's, I can be a, a really strong key contributor to my family, to my friends, to my work colleagues, but I don't have to be in that extroverted role. I can be quiet. So I think part of that's giving myself permission to be how I'm really wired and then as a result saying, it's okay, it's okay to not step in and have the answer and it's okay to not step in and lead. Um, you are leading, but you're leading quietly. So I think getting comfortable, more comfortable with that. It's kind of like the comfort started in the core and it's expanding out through my body. And it's just, it's like, you know, my hands are at the very end of the trail and it hadn't quite gotten all the way out to them yet, but I know it's headed there. Mm. You mentioned a few things there about sort of introversion. Is your hands fidgeting when you're at home and zooming and taking care of all those things? Um, they'll fidget if I am leading a call on Zoom, but if I'm by myself around the house, no. And that's that was the trigger when I began to realize there is a certain amount of stress that is produced in my body when I am in those roles, in those settings. And the permission you speak of, have you ever received permission in any other facet of your work or life? No, <laughs> because people expect me to be the way that I am. They need me, you know, in many cases to be, to continue to serve the roles that I've served in their lives. And so I think part of the work of this ne next decade and chapter of my life is figuring out um, where do I want to invest energy, you know, and the places where I invest energy, is there is there a return on that investment or is it just simply I'm living in a historical past that is really draining? What would be a very grandiose ask? You, know, you mentioned permissions. What would that ask be? I think the ask that I've started making of those I feel comfortable speaking with and talking to about this has been, I need permission to not take care of things. I need permission to not be the one responsible about it. many things, not everything, but many things. Um, some of that I inherently take on and then that creates dependency from others. Um, but I just last week had a conversation with uh, the other co-founder of our startup company. And I said, I need to get out of this role of taking care of things. And I said, I'm carrying the list of things that need to be done. And I'm following up repeatedly. And I said, it is, I hate it. I hate this role. I hate doing this work. 
And he was extremely responsive, and he said, you're exactly right. So we're working to shift that. So that's that's my grandiose idea, but it's not just change on others' part. I have to change. I have to be okay when things are dropping and they're not getting done and, you know, things aren't happening. And that's requiring, it's a paradox, letting go of control. So in that infinite wisdom of yours, what's one step that will get you closer to that, you think? Mm. One step. (laughs) The simple thing that comes to mind is creating a sign, taping it up right behind my computer screen that says, it's okay if it doesn't get done, and giving myself permission. And in every email, every phone call where, you know, I'm mentally keeping a list of commitments that are made on the call, what we're discussing doing, looking at that sheet and saying it is not my responsibility to ensure that all of this gets done. Yeah, sort of curious in the beginning, you mentioned how AI in your breast cancer discovery of of that, how that you wish that would have, you know, been more prominent. Mm -hmm. Can you use any of that in this in this situation? I think, you know, the day will come where AI can be applied to working with others and responsibility for others. Um, I'm not aware yet of where that exists. But I do think the concept of an algorithm where you look at something and you run it through a model of, is this uniquely something that I need to do? Or is this uniquely something that someone else needs to do? And then based on what it is, so this would be the algorithm, based on what it is, who should do it, and then figuring out the mechanism for making sure it's on their plate. And in so, that algor- and in that algorithm, what are some of the components that would light you up? Components that would let me up from that obligation to get it done yeah. would be um, overtly stating um, on calls or in meetings, summarizing, here's what we're agreeing to do. It sounds like x would be the best person to do it x do you agree and if yes so again another little piece of logic tree if yes then when do you think you might be able to get that done and sort of making sure that's on someone else's plate that it's clear there's a commitment there's a follow-through established there so it's a it's again back to my responsibility. My responsibility is to give articulation to that and to make sure that it's clear and that it's left clear and then to hands up, back off, you know, notice the hands involved. It's it's not anything that I've taken on. And then how would you handle a a schism or an obstacle? If it was, because I've had this, if it was a person who was highly unstructured and just was not getting things done, then deal with that one-on-one and talk about the impact, because I've had this conversation just in the last several weeks, (laughs) the impact that their behavior has on me when they have agreed to do certain things and things aren't getting done and how that impacts the company and how it impacts others around. And in that particular case, the individual was incredible, like there's no ill intent there. I mean, you do have people that are outside of the bell curve and not easy to work with, 
this is not that person's case. They just have a really low need on structure and they're not very organized. So it is, it's incredibly difficult for them personally to keep track of commitments and then to follow through on commitments. So, but it's, um, it's a case where I was taking on too much of helping to manage those commitments for them. And is this something that's feasible and, and or realistic? I feel like it is. I actually feel like it's incredibly healthy. And I think you should be able to live with and work with individuals who make commitments to do things and then expect them to follow through on them. And what about accountability in this? Accountability for them or for me? Both. Both. So I think in terms of accountable, we're all accountable. In my mind, when you've made a commitment to get something done, you are accountable for getting it done. I have a very high level of self-accountability. Um, and I'm looking for structures at work to log commitments so that we can, whether it's through um, performance objectives or the assignment of key contributions that individuals can make, and then using those things routinely in meetings as check-ins, not as punishment, but just as let's stay focused on the prize and stay focused on what needs to get done. So I think accountability is really important. And if you sort of implemented this algorithm, AI, how does that trust and vulnerability play a factor? I think trust and vulnerability, my experience with trust and vulnerability in the work environment is when you have a team who at their very essence are individuals that are emotionally healthy and are people of strong intention and have personal integrity, trust and vulnerability works amazing. It's powerful. It's breakthrough powerful. It's paradigm changing. And I have lived that and witnessed it. I think when you have individuals who are unhealthy emotionally, I just, I don't know how to do that. Trust and vulnerability part. It's just, you've got two people who, or a group of people who literally can't be trusting and vulnerable with one another. You shared with me sort of your view on, with COVID, sort of realizing that you are highly introverted, um, but you play these extroverted roles. How do you, how do your coworkers sort of view you, you think? When we've had assessments done of our personalities, and I always test as an introvert, they're shocked, absolutely shocked. And it takes them by surprise. And I think what um, they've learned over time, because, you know, when they'll plan social events before COVID, you know, parties, social events, social gatherings, dinners together, you know, I just I go just dreading going and because it's so much work to me. And yet they want me there because I'm such an integral part of the team. And I love that about them, that they want me to be a part of things. But it's a lot of work for me. And I think their realization that um, of my introvertness is giving me permission now to say, you know, pick and choose those things that I make myself available for and get together. Of course, those are still extremely rare in this current environment. But I think moving forward, there's just, I can talk about it, you know, openly now, whereas before it was something that just wasn't discussed. So Mary Beth, we talked a lot about 
sort of the discovery and using AI and vulnerability and uh, how's it all how's it all landing for you right now? I think it's landing. Um, I feel very much at peace. Um, feel very much um, similar to how where we were at the very beginning of the call. I think this is a journey I've been on. I think I'm conscious of this journey and um, of you know growing out into my hands, if you will. And I'm very much looking forward to the next several years. I just, I think 60 is a great age, great age, because I have permission. I feel like I've finally given my pers- myself permission to be who I am. And that is a great gift. And if you was to articulate who you are in a, in a few words, what's, what is that? a very um, perceptive and wise person um, who is passionate about leaving the people that have been brought into my life and the work that I'm doing better when I'm gone. Legacy. Would you like to say anything to that little little girl, Mary Beth, now with knowing this? I would say you are incredibly strong and courageous and amazing. Wow. You emphasize the amazing part. Yep. She's pretty incredible. Well, on that note, I think if this is a good place to transition into the interview portion, you good? Great. Yes. Great. So tell my audience more about you, what you do, and what your mission is in life. Terrific. So I, um, I'm involved in a startup called Beekeeper AI, and our company is focused on accelerating the development of AI and healthcare by providing cyber security for healthcare data to allow the data to remain right where it is with the data stewards who hold that data in healthcare, which is typically hospitals and health systems. But it allows uh, algorithm models that you know, algorithm developers have spent countless hours and lots of money developing. It protects the intellectual property of those models while they get sent to the data stewards for uh, validation and training and deployment. And that's different because what happens today is the algorithm developers require access, direct access to patient data and whether that's been de-identified or comes in some other form, synthetic, um, what we're allowing is no access to the data, but yet the AI can be trained and validated against the data through confidential computing. So it's a brand new way to think about how do we securely, safely leverage the wealth of information within healthcare data without exposing that data or putting patients' data at risk. To a layman, that's very complex work. Uh, what has been your career trajectory to get you to where you are today? No, it is, it's funny, it is complex work. And um, I started in healthcare 25 years ago, working in quality improvement with health systems. And of course, that was all based on Dr. Deming's work around uh, quality improvement, total quality management, TQM, which was based on using the tools of statistical process control. And so I cut my teeth on using this data to improve things in hospitals like accidental falls from patients, um, infections that weren't supposed to happen. So things that shouldn't have happened in the healthcare environment, but they were, and the health systems were diligently working to improve it. 
But what statistical process control helped them know was when they had a blip, you know, it was a one-time special circumstance that occurred versus something that was predictable and routine. And we call that noise versus signal. So was there just noise happening or was this a true signal that something had statistically occurred? And I just became intellectually fascinated with the concept of noise versus signal. Mm. And as a listener and someone who was in you know, meetings with people listening, I think one of my superpowers is discerning when I've received a signal versus all of the noise of the talk, 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 and then, ooh, signal, there's a signal. And that ability to listen for the signal through all the noise has been one of the hallmarks of my career. So with this fascination of how can we bring the signal in data to the frontline of care delivery so that that signal is getting through, not the noise of treatment within a clinical environment, I really embarked on a career that has been very focused on how do we bring data to inform, help inform clinical care at the front line of care. And so I've had several, um, I had a startup that spun out of partners in Boston that was AI-based health coaching that took the signals from um, scales and blood pressure cuffs and blood sugar information and data and really personalized coaching. And I developed a software system in mental health that helped detect when someone was really receiving benefit from psychotherapy and alleviating distress. And so as I saw the power of what the feedback, the signal feedback to those care providers did to change the course and the trajectory of outcomes, health outcomes, I really became even further dedicated to helping to transform healthcare using data. And of course, data. Now I've been working at UCSF for seven, almost seven years and getting oh. access to data rightfully so is incredibly difficult and very time consuming. And so with the help of some colleagues at UCSF, we've set about to make data more accessible, but also more secure at the same time. Well, that's going to be my next question about COVID. How has that changed things or has it? You know, I think COVID in some ways has accelerated the importance of digital and digital health. Um, and I think we've also seen uh, the struggle even within COVID treatment and COVID testing and, you know, that whole the deployment of the vaccine and, you know, the ability or the inability to do surveillance of where is COVID popping up and where are the outbreaks occurring so I think the barrier to healthcare data has become more pronounced, and yet there is also greater readiness and acceptance by health systems to adopt a more digital approach to their care and care delivery. So allowing patients to call in from home and talk to their physician via telemedicine or remote care monitoring, you know, whatever that might be. And helping, I know we um, at UCSF worked with some lung transplant surgeons to do some in-home monitoring so that patients didn't have to risk coming out into the natural world from their homes and go to a surgeon's office to do a routine checkup post a lung transplant. And so having those devices connected and monitoring and Imagine if you have algorithms that are looking for outliers, the signals that a patient has become started to decline after transplant, just, you know, they're just amazing possibilities. And so I think in some ways, COVID served as a catalyst for innovation. Yeah, because a lot of individuals that I know, you know, are just, they can't believe that we just have this card <laughs> that anyone can write on. Um, 
and of course it's a mixed bag um, of people who want something more you know digital and and right. more sort of uh, you know transparent and of course you have the other ones that are like no I, I want it I want my exactly I want my medical you know sort of information protected so yeah. it's definitely a fine line that's exactly right well and I think individuals data has to be protected and should be protected there is no question about that and so i think though to the extent that we are able to protect identity and yet use it to improve care um, it's it's an important opportunity that we will be enabled to do moving forward in the future what would be like a tip that you would say to someone who you know sort of is inundated with Everything health healthcare related right now in terms of you know their you know their privacy in terms of what's happening in the world. Any anything you can sort of share in your experience? You know we are even in healthcare. You know even as individuals. You know I think about um, our private email accounts, and I don't know if you've ever been through the process of having to change your email account because your email got hacked. Um, I really believe that cyber warfare, and I call it warfare, Mm -hmm. I think individually and I think organizationally, we are under increasing attack through um, cyber means. And I think the extent to which we can be wise about where we post our names, how we post our names, it's critically important. Um, within the healthcare institutions, there I know the health systems that I work with, and certainly UCSF, tremendously committed to maintaining patient privacy and information privacy. And you know, you think about the amount of information that's collected on paper forms right now, and <laughs> you know, it's like they they have everything. Um, but all of that information is incredibly important to protect and yet also very difficult during a day and age in which cyber attacks are occurring almost, you know, daily. Yeah, I agree. Well, I also wanted to thank you for contributing to my I Survived Cancer. Here's how I did it with Authority Magazine and Thrive Global. What has been the reaction from that? You know, I think people have been um, encouraged uh, around the early diagnosis and the fact that if women find their cancer at stage zero or stage one, there it's a 95% success rate, wow. if not higher. Wow, wow. I mean, it's just incredible. And, you know, while it's, it's an inconvenience, it's not like your cancer journey. You know, it's... Um, you know, you go in and yes, there's surgery involved and yes, there's radiation involved for stage one. Um, but it's it's not, it's a 90 day, for me, it was a 90 day process. And I think for many stage one women and of course stage zero, typically there's not any radiation involved. So I think for women doing the preventive screenings and making sure that if they're finding cancer, they're finding it early it's not like the stage two, stage three cancers where, you know, you literally are battling for yeah. your life and for extended life. So I I think it's the encouragement that's been provided, the story around go early, get your mammograms done, you know, find it early because the outcomes are so good. Yeah. So, well, that's the one thing I really loved. Uh, you know, in the piece, in your piece, because you mm. specifically in the work that you do, it's really all about trying to be preventative minded or trying to find yes. some type of indication that there's some form of cancer because you need to catch it early. The That's longer right. you wait and dread and fear, the worse it gets because it's 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 That's what right. it does. It's a cancer. It It eats away. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, when um, they don't stage cancer in breast cancer until after the surgery and the lumpectomy oh. and, you know, they send all of the tissue along with your sentinel lymph node. 
to see if the cancer cells have spread from the tumor site up into the lymph system, which then carries it out into the body. So with the lymph nodes serving as the gateway to the body, it was, you know, it was incredibly an anxious time after surgery before the results came back from the lymph nodes, even though, you know, the physicians were saying, we really don't believe it spread, but you don't know until, you know, the lab says no presence of cancer cells in those sentinel nodes. And I, um, I can't imagine Well, I don't want to imagine how it would have felt if they had said there is a presence of cancer in your lymph nodes, because then that specter of cancer, that phantom, cancer phantom, has now entered who knows where in your body. And that's it's hard to fight a ghost. It's really... I mean, I had a very specific spot in my breast. I knew where it was. You know, as I mentioned, I knew exactly how it felt, where it was. Um, so when I did radiation, which I did the internal beam radiation, I was able to imagine that spot and wow. you know, imagine the beam killing the tissue around that spot. And... It would just be a different paradigm if I thought I was chasing a ghost. So the main thing is don't wait. Don't let it get into that gateway to your body. Get it before it gets to the gateway. So, And use technology and let it be exacting. Let it do what it – let it be precision-based. Exactly. Exactly. So allow AI to tell the technician, yes, this person is sufficiently positioned. Use AI to detect, you know, pin, pin size tumors on, you know, images and help the radiologist to find that. Help the, you know, the wand on the ultrasound. Help the technician go, you found it. You know, you, you've got it. Uh, it would have been great to have had that angel on my shoulder. Yeah. Such a fascinating conversation. Tell my audience where they can find more about you, your company on the Internet. So uh, the company is under beekeeperai.com, and my personal journey with cancer is a blog, Pinking Behind the Curtain. So it's P-I-N-K-I-N-G, Pinking Behind the Curtain, and um, would love to hear from anyone. Well, this has been beautiful, Mary Beth. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing. Sure, absolutely. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, where you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.